Good morning. All right, everyone's awake, got caffeine with the one hour less of sleep. Everyone good? We are talking about, thank you, we are talking about the B-I-B-L-E. Now that's the book for me. We are in part two of a series titled Opening the Senses, and the subtitle is The Complexity and Nourishment of the B-I-B-L-E. It's confusing, right? I mean, the Bible is so confusing. So many weird stories, but regardless of your past, your background, your childhood, your upbringing, or even your current worldview, you and I have been exposed to different Bible stories. But the issue that's kind of driving this five-part series is we know Bible stories, but we do not know the Bible story. We know Bible stories. You know, maybe you remember your childhood Bible if you grew up in a Christian household. You remember stuff like that, but you don't, maybe you and I are not familiar or can't really grasp the entire Bible narrative or the Bible story. The problem is when we just know very cute stories of Noah's Ark and we know nice things that Jesus did and we kind of know bits and pieces of Bible stories, then all of a sudden when you come across one story, especially in the Old Testament, and you look at some of the stuff and you're like, for real? This really happened? A guy really got swallowed by a whale? What? I, you know what? I think I'm done with all of this. Like now I come across that, maybe as a kid, how did I believe this as a kid? And the older I got, the more I realized how insane these stories are. And then you realize, you know what? I think I'm done with the whole Christian thing altogether now that I'm old enough to see some of these stories. But something we have talked about, and let me just steal this Bible from the connection table because I have my own Bible. So this nice Bible, and it's gold, and this beautiful Bible that we have now. The Bible here does not begin on page one where it says in the beginning. The Bible does not begin there because that this is not what drove so many people throughout the early centuries to put and bind these groups of books and manuscripts together. It does not begin with in the beginning. It begins with two women who came to an empty tomb. And when they saw it empty, they ran back and told people, and they just assumed someone stole the body of the dead rabbi, Jesus. And when they came to find, and other men, when Peter and John and other people then ran to, the, to that tomb to find out if really it's empty, this is what started the B-I-B-L-E, the reality that physics of death was overcome this is where the Bible begins, not necessarily within the beginning. There has something that happened in the early centuries for them to glue and bind and tape, whatever, two aspects of the Bible together. You and I might know it as the Old Testament and the other as being called the New Testament. Nobody likes something that's old, right? So many of us want to just skip the Old Testament and maybe some of us even question, why on earth is it even the Bible anyway? If it's all about Jesus, then why on earth should we even, like, just, it's, it's Jewish stuff. Like, it's not about Jesus. Like, Jesus came to make all things new, right? So why even bother with this first half of the B-I-V-L-E? I want to share you with this, and this, is, this thought is what's going to drive us for the next 20 minutes. When non-Jews became enamored with the risen rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, they became enamored with the sacred text of the Jews. Let me elaborate and then I'll read it again. Let me, let me, let me do the opposite. Let me read it again then I'll explain. When non-Jews became enamored with the risen rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, they became enamored with the sacred text of the Jews. 
when non-Jewish people, they're titled Gentiles, started to become interested in who Jesus was or is, they began to say, wait, Rabbi, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Jesus. Then all of a sudden, they wanted to connect the dots. Then all of a sudden, they became interested in the Jewish Bible. They became interested in Jewish sacred texts. Then all of a sudden, they would begin to look back and start reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and Exodus and Genesis. They began to look back and started to read all these Jewish texts because for them, these non-Jewish who became followers of Jesus started to become interested in Jewish texts. These early Jesus followers were looking at this Jewish Bible, not through a Jewish lens, but with a Christian lens. And the fancy word, I hope I don't lose you on this, the lens in which they started to, to read now Leviticus, Genesis, all that, the, the lens in which they started to, to read the Jewish Bible was through a Christological lens. I hope I don't lose you. Christological lens. Now, all of a sudden, they started to see, they, now they want to be like, okay, Rabbi Jesus overcame death. I'm all in. Now I want to start connecting that. Let me now, let me read now this Jewish Bible, this Jewish text, the manuscript. Now, now let me read the, the, the Torah through a different lens. Now let me read it through a Christological lens. Now what drove them was how can they find Jesus living in this, the, these Jewish manuscripts? This is what drove the early Christians. And this is what made them so intrigued to the Old Testament. This is what intrigued them. Actually, it wasn't called Old Testament then. That didn't come until hundreds of years later. This is what made them so intrigued in these Jewish manuscripts. To them, it became like a puzzle. Now they're like, oh, okay, like Jesus, now I'm starting to connect the dots of how he made a big deal about five loaves and two fish and saying we need bread and food. Now I connect it with manna. I, and, and they started to connect all the dots together. Now to them, it became a puzzle for them to attain and embrace the fullness of life. Jesus never titled him being a rabbi, never titled these Jewish manuscripts. He didn't call them the Old Testament. Again, that didn't come until hundreds of years later. He titled them the sayings of the law and the prophets. These are the sayings of the law and the prophets. Even early Christian writers, one of them being a fourth century bishop by the name St. John Chrysostom, he said that he didn't call it the Old Testament. Most of the time he didn't. He titled it the books, the books, the books. They were so captivated because of this statement. Sorry, let me rewind that when non-Jews became enamored, they became so interested with the risen Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, they started to become intrigued. They started to lean in toward the sacred text of the Jews. They became more interested in it because they wanted to connect the dots. The, here's another summary of what we're gonna be talking about over the next few minutes. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, this collection of Jewish manuscripts records God's redemptive or restorative acts of humanity that came to a fine point. So many people begin to deconstruct their faith or they deconvert away from Christianity when they come across things in the, in the Jewish Bible, in the manuscripts, and they say, this is weird. And, and, they, and they say, I'm kind of done with God, all of us. That's why I stopped going to church. After my parents couldn't force me anymore, that's why I stopped going. Because they're not looking at these collection of books titled the Old Testament, they looked at it through the wrong lens. But the Old Testament records God's redemptive or restorative acts of humanity that came to a fine point. And your third grade answer of who is the fine point, it would be Jesus. Very good. Once upon a time, 
before there was time. There was the being, the one who describes himself of being the I am, the uncreated, incomprehensible God, the great, the eternal. This God, who is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, wanted to reflect the reality of who he is in creation. He wanted to reflect the reality of who he is, him being the totality of three persons of God, the triune God. He wanted to reflect him, the reality of who he is in humanity. So he created, in, uh, not just in humanity, but in all of, cre all of creation. So he created the most amazing blissful paradise ever, which we know, or at least would described and articulated by Moses, the prophet, he records this oral tradition by titling, titling it the Garden of Eden. And everything was beautiful and perfection. But the epitome of all that God had created was man. And there was this synergistic relationship, a, a full intimacy between the being and the human being. And this is what existed. But embedded in this high ethic of love between this relationship between the being and man, was man able to decide if he wants to continue to walk with the being or distance himself from the being? This was his option. Out, out, of, out of the being's respect and honor and free will for man. But man wanted to abuse his free will. And he said, man, this tree looks like that. What are you talking about? I, I, if I want to eat from this tree, I can. Who are you to tell me, right? Humanity became, became enslaved to deception. And all of a sudden, the being had to say, I, I, gave you one, I gave you one rule. I'm trying to guide you out of my love for you. So there had to be a break in the relationship. But this being hated to see his creation fall away from him. It broke his heart. I mean, what parents hates to see their child start drifting away? So God hated to see humanity drift away. So from that point, God was on a mission to restore humanity, to redeem him. So God, the Holy Trinity, began a mission. What we pray to, to, for, 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 for 1,800 years, and these words were written in the 4th century. Lord, you have not abandoned us. You have not abandoned us but you have always visited us through your holy prophets, through kings, through judges. You have continued to visit us. You have not abandoned us, but have always visited us through your holy prophets. These are the words of St. Basil the Great, a bishop from the fourth century. And we pray this liturgically now. He has not abandoned us, but he continued to restore us because now a human being now has not become a human being because of his brokenness, because of the distortion of humanity, Human being has now become a human becoming. He is wanting to become like God. So not to sound all philosophical, but we're not necessarily human beings. We're human becoming. We're wanting to become the fullness of God. So now there is a break, but God did not leave us. He continued to, to visit us and to reveal some aspect of who he is continuously through kings, through prophets, through judges, and he continued to visit us. Just to name a few, Abraham was one. Moses was another. Here are leaders of the appointed people that God has chosen, the, the Jews, to, to lead them to, to, to restoration, to lead them back to the being, for man to, to, to 
find restoration or, 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 or to find the remedy to their brokenness and connect them back to the being. So God's told Abraham, told Moses, gave him tons and tons and tons of laws. To be honest, 632 laws of do this, don't do that. Don't you dare think about this. If you do this, then I'll do that. It was very transactional. It was very transactional. And I want to highlight something like I, I, I'm not going to bore you with 632 laws. But one, a, a collection of these 632 laws is something written in, in Leviticus chapter 18, in which God gives humanity a series of laws related to sexual ethics. Now I got your attention. Sexual ethics and sexual morality. And God started to then tell humanity, listen, yeah, yeah, you know, you know marrying your, 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 your relative, uh, that's no. So Jesus started, so God started to give him, started to give humanity a high bar concerning sexual ethics. And this was so new to humanity. If you look at world history as a whole, this was brand new. These series, and you can look it up yourself, Leviticus chapter 18. It was a series of laws about sexuality to help restore humanity. Not to be a party pooper, not to make a mistake. No, he's trying to redeem humanity. He's trying to show them how they were divinely designed to embrace the beauty and the fragile gift of sex. So he, gives, so he gives humanity this code, this moral code related to sexuality. And again, if you just, just look at a world history, I'm not going to bore you, you can look this up on your, on your own. This was so ahead of the times, like so many other modern civilizations built their ethics on what is written that, that God told Moses. So this sets like the framework for humanity to build up toward having reverence or honor toward sexuality. Please do not answer this question out loud, but where do babies come from? The answer I would give my five-year-old daughter is different than I would give a 16-year-old kid. It's different than the answer I would give to a med student. It's different than I would give to someone who's attending, who's, who's attending premarital retreat, right? I'm not lying. I'm not lying when I tell my daughter, you know, God just poof, you know, I'm not lying. And, and, and then, but for, to a med student, I'm going to give a more elaborate biological explanation. I'm not lying. I'm not lying, but I'm giving a different answer depending on the capacity of what they are able to embrace. In the same way, what God has done through humanity and what he continues to do is embracing our capacity in this way. When humanity started to, started to build up, God said, okay, here is a rubric to follow concerning sexual ethics. Do this, don't do this, you know, this is a no-no, this is a yeah. He started to build them up. But as humanity got older, God had to, to bring this law to fullness. He led them north. So look at, look at, if you look at all throughout, if you look at all of this, from page one, God is kind of babying humanity or parenting humanity. Okay, don't do this. Don't eat. No, I don't. I, don't, I told you not to eat that apple. Okay, I told you. And then he's trying to guide them. Okay, do, do this, but don't do this. Okay, listen to me. What I'm about to say. Okay, I told you. I'm going to get you food. I'm going to get you manna. Just hold on. So God is now guiding humanity as He is growing up, and then as humanity grew, then God said, "Okay, now I gave you those laws in the beginning, but I want to give you the fullness of the law. I want to redeem you, and I want you to understand the reasoning behind it." Right, parents, you get this. You tell your kid, eat your broccoli. Don't put your finger in the outlet. Why? Because I said, why? Because why? Then as they get older, you, then you'll explain electricity in the circuit, right? You're not going to explain that to a five-year-old. You're going to say, don't do it. I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to explain. Just don't do it. 
Then as they get older, you're going to explain. Then you'll answer the why. But what a five-year-old is going to say, when they keep on asking why, chill. I'm telling you, don't put your finger in the out. And as they get older, then you will begin to explain it. So God did the same thing through the Jewish people. If you're not, not sure yet about this answer, uh, we can talk about it later. But anyway. Being was broken from man, but being sent messages to humanity to restore them back. But the being said, enough is enough. I need to fully reveal myself to humanity to redeem him, to restore him. And that full restoration came through the person of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And his name again would be Jesus Christ. In the words of St. Athanasius, a fourth century bishop, he said, God became man in order for man to become like God. It's so poetic. But this is the reality of the Christian worldview, that God became man in order to lift man back up to be, become like God. Because our original design, the fullness of who we are intended to be, is to be human being, to be perfectly made in the image and likeness of the Holy Trinity. Like I mentioned, the Old Testament was not called the Old Testament until 130 A.D., and the Old Testament was not added to the New Testament until 350 A.D. And this, and around that time is when we get the name the Bible. If you have a hard time embracing the Old Testament, and some stories maybe have thrown you off, maybe you know of a coworker or a friend who says, you know what, I stopped going to church because, man, have you ever read this chapter in the Bible? Have you ever read this story? That's crazy. What kind of God would be all about war and battle? What kind of God is that, man? Is that the God you follow? If you come across those conversations, welcome to the club, but I want you to be equipped of how to respond and for you to know who you're anchored to. Now, but I want you to, to, to know that the Old Testament comes to life through the New Testament. The Old Testament by itself is really nice stories, but it's still dry. The bar is set low, but it becomes alive through the lens of the New Testament, through a Christological lens. Now I want to share with you some from the first century, some early Christian uh, thoughts and how they understood this collection of Jewish manuscripts, which we now know being titled the Old Testament. St. Paul, who was an ex-Jew, Man, this guy, he memorized 632 laws. He knew the Jewish Torah. He knew the Jewish Bible in and out. Now, St. Paul, being a convert to being all into Jesus, this is his words that he had to say. But when the set time had fully come, there was a fullness of time which was attained. There was a fullness of time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to restore those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, if you notice, he took... A, a legalistic dry language of law, but he came to restore us and adopt us. It became, draw, it became laws, do's and don'ts. Now it became a relationship. This is the evolution and timeline of humanity growing with God. And now God's saying, I'm here, I'm here to adopt you. But the, the framework, the background of all of that is the law, is the laws and the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus said these words. You have heard that it was said, you, hey, Jewish people, pay attention. I know, I know, I know, you just learned this last Saturday at the synagogue. I know you know the Jewish Bible. I know you memorized, I, mem I know you memorized everything Moses wrote. Cool. I know you have heard it said. Cool. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not belittling it. I'm not ignoring it. I know you have heard this being said. I get it. 
I know, I, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I know you have heard that already. Cool. I know you've heard that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying, cool. I know you have heard the bar, do not commit adultery. Perfect. But I want you to understand the delicate nature of sexuality. I want you to know, understand the, 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 the high bar that we are called to attain. I want you to fight the good fight. I want you to, to push yourself to, to have the utmost reverence of this delicate aspect or element of humanity that I have embedded in you. So Jesus raises the bar. You have heard this? Cool. I'm telling you, it's here. Are you, you, you say no, no to adultery? Cool. That's awesome. That's great. That's great for, for, for a, a, a low worldview, a low ethic. But I'm wanting to raise that to, to the fullness. Just looking, you have already committed adultery. Why? Why, why Jesus? Why, why do you got to be such a party pooper? Why are you raising it so high? Come on. Like, isn't this, isn't this bar enough? Like, wh why are you raising it up, up here? Because sexuality is so much more than just it being physical. It's something so much more. It's so delicate. It involves our hormones. It involves our emotions. It involves every aspect of who we are. So Jesus is trying to tell us, be so delicate and have the utmost respect for this aspect of humanity because it's going to throw you off. So Jesus raises the bar for us to what we should aim for. Jesus also said this. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Don't think that I came just to erase this first half of the B-I-B-L-E. Don't think I'm just telling you to dismiss it. Don't think I'm just telling you not to read it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I came to bring it to completion. I came to bring the fullness of it because I am the fullness of life. I am the cluster of life in the words that we say in the Igbeya, in the prayer book. On that last night that Jesus had with his disciples, as they were coming to celebrate a meal, and Jesus came in such a countercultural way and got on his knees and started to wash every foot and toe of the 12 disciples. And they're kind of speechless because they expect a slave to do this. They expect a, serp a servant to do this. And Jesus told them, have a seat after he washes their feet. And he tells them this. A new command I give you. Nathaniel, Peter, cool, Andrew, I know. I know you know the 632. I, I know you're probably thinking another law. No, I'm not telling you a new command. I'm not giving you a new command. I'm not giving you something you to add to that. But a new command in which will fulfill everything you know as Jewish men. That a new command I give you. Love one another. Cool. Love one another. What worldview does not believe this? Every worldview says love one another, Right? Your non-Christian friends, maybe those who have walked away, love one another. Why can't I just love one another? Awesome. But Jesus doesn't end there. This is a new command I give you. Love one another. How? The way I should view love? No. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I'm giving you a new command. Cool. You know all that stuff. Awesome. I'm so proud of you for memorizing the 632 laws. I'm so happy that you know these Jewish manuscripts. Awesome but I'm giving you something new, that you are called to love. Yes, even that annoying person. Yes, love them. How? By looking at me, by loving the way that I have shown love. And I don't think a single word was said from those 12 disciples as they heard these words was so radical to them. How about all the stories that make zero sense in the Old Testament? 
What do you say when someone comes to you and says, a worldwide flood, for real? Give me evidence of that. For real? God wanted to kill hundreds and thousands of people for war? What kind of God is that? What is your response when someone comes to you with those? Very valid. And there's tons of resources on this. But I want to share with you words from two very, very smart people. I know this is a long talk, but I can't tell you how critical this is. I want to share with you the words of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Has anybody heard of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris? It's okay. You can raise your hand. It's okay to know them. <laughs> they're, they're very smart people, very smart people, and I have the utmost respect for them. They don't see the full completion of everything, but I love their way of thinking. It, they're very smart. Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. I want to share with you, these are two atheists who are, are, are very vocal about anti-Christian, and, 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 and I want you to hear their perspective. They're very, very smart people, okay? This is what they have to say. Richard Dawkins says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Is Father Nathaniel allowed to say that in church? Sam Harris says this. What do you say to this, by the way? What's your response to Richard Dawkins? Sam Harris. Yeah, laugh. Yeah. Sam Harris says this. It is time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reason fails. Again, it is time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reasons fail. These are brilliant people. What is your response to them? Better yet, what is the response of one of the 12 disciples. Interview Nathaniel. Interview Peter. Peter, what would you say to Richard Dawkins? What would you say to Sam Harris? Highly intelligent people. Their, 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 their point is extremely valid. What is your response, Peter? And I want to share with you, just theoretically, what would Peter, if he came, like if he was with us now, and, you, and, 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 and I show him what Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris said, what would Sam Peter have to say? Him being a first eyewitness and everything he said, what would Sam Peter have to say? And I want to share with you, I wrote down, as if I'm St. Peter, how would St. Peter respond to these very intelligent quotes? Richard, Sam, I am certainly aware of what it means to be a Jew. And I am aware of all the stories I learned in synagogue. Richard, Sam, nothing you said has anything to do with my decision to follow Jesus. Sam? You mentioned the inadequacy of my reasoning. Well, I only have one reason for it. When my teacher was arrested, I ran. And when people asked me if I knew him, I lied. And when the Romans crucified him, he died. At that moment, I was just like you. I had no faith. When two women came to tell me about an empty tomb, a resurrection was the last thing on my mind. Because Sam, Richard, have you seen a crucifixion? Yeah, I don't think so. I just assumed someone took the body or the woman went to the wrong tomb. Richard, I don't have a well-thought-out response to you about the Jewish stories I know of a human swallowing fish or a talking serpent. But one thing I know, I believe because of what I saw. My death-overcoming teacher 
came to make all things new. I will never forget that Thursday night meal, me and my friends, what we had with him. He told us of a new command that we should love one another as he loved us. My trust is not based on something I read or my upbringing, but what I saw. Now, death has a new meaning to me. Life has a new meaning because of what I saw and experienced. This, my friends, is the anchor of what identifies us as being followers of Jesus. Not just saying the Bible says this, not when we get lost in these questions, and there are tons of resources on I can share with you, but where does it begin? Of how 12 skeptics realized love and hope personified and death overcome. This is what makes you and me a Christian. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, for centuries, you have worked in us, in humanity, to redeem us to who we are designed to be. But Lord, we come to you with maybe questions of our faith, questions of you, we come with our weakness, with our struggles, wanting to embrace you, you being the, the, the reality of our hope, the reality of our identity. Lord, I pray that what anchors us is what not just these 12 disciples realized and witnessed, but hundreds of people who witnessed the reality of you overcoming death. This is what identifies us. This is what makes the Bible come alive and to give us life and edification and nourishment. Lord, I pray that we can put on your lens and view these collection of ancient writings with, with the lens of, of seeing through you, seeing you come alive in all of these collection of stories. Lord, you are the hope of us all and the life of us all and the resurrection of us all. Lord, we ask that this journey of Lent brings change within us, cleanses us, and helps us to, to lead us to celebrating you overcoming death through us celebrating the Feast of Resurrection. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.